the fun part, which is how you put these together, to the, for, for us, maybe less fun part of what is in there. What, uh, what most surprised you about your reading? Did you find anything really surprising in there? Go ahead. Paul Revere was not the star of the book. What happened to Paul? Where'd he go? Well, that's because there's a poem that never really made it that said, listen, my children, I'll give you pause. The hero of the night was William Dawes. <laughs> and he was. Paul had to go home. Dawes got through. He finished the ride. But Longfellow found Revere easier to rhyme. <laughs> so, so that's something to think about with your students. You know, what, what is really ultimately how we decide history? Sometimes we base it entirely on what's convenient unfortunately. What else? Go ahead. Um, I was surprised to hear that the beginning, some of the beginnings of uh, the women's, women's rights and the African-Americans as well kind of started there. Like it was the beginning of the that even gave me the idea that they could have rights. Okay, what, what did they start doing as a result? What, what results from the revolution that affects women and African-Americans? Women could own land. The, a lot of the slaves that were down south that were, were with the British people got freed or went up to Canada. Left okay. What else? Well, politics was more accessible to everybody. It was a lot easier to, for everybody to get involved. Now, Lord Dunsmore, and you're more up on this than I am, Lord Dunsmore also was up to no good for the British, or no good according to the colonists. I'll hold this thing. <laughs> He, he issued the proclamation that uh, would free slaves who would help the British, right? Right. That's what he did. So he, he says, essentially, all you slaves, help the British, and you will get manumitted at the end of that. And, of course, then the colonists respond by issuing a similar kind of proclamation that if slaves served, that they would be freed. And there ended up being about 5,000 slaves who served for the colonial side, and m most of those were freed as a result of their service. There were some masters who were a little reluctant to do that, but most actually did receive freedom for their service. How else were African Americans affected? There's more involvement in churches. I, I think we also begin to see some segregation of churches to some extent. Uh, Mitch? Well, I was going to say, as a long-term effect, didn't, when the economy expanded, didn't they need more slaves or in a negative way they were affected that way? Some of the Ultimately, and I mean, wood goes up into the Constitution and the beginnings of the Republic, as the economy's growing, yes. Now, what the Founding Fathers thought about slavery is still a bit up in the air. Remember at the Constitutional Convention, the big fight is over representation of slaves, and they, how do they resolve it? Three-fifths of a person. They don't tell you which three-fifths. <laughs> we know it's 60% of a person. Now they say for every five, they will count three. 
Now this gives the South disproportionate influence in the Electoral College and in the House of Representatives. But the Founding Fathers probably thought slavery was going to die out. And there's evidence to suggest they oppose it. The word doesn't appear in the Constitution. They make it possible to ban the African slave trade. The other thing is, at that time, slavery, and this is the point you're going to, was not so profitable as it became. And in a funny sort of way, you can blame Eli Whitney on two fronts, because he's involved in two inventions. He gets too much credit for both, but the cotton gin and interchangeable parts. Now, where the cotton gin is important is the cotton gin removes the seeds from the cotton. Cotton is a plant. It has seeds, just like any other plant. Well, it was incredibly labor-intensive. It was incredibly difficult to get the seeds removed. The gin takes care of that. Slavery becomes more profitable and more important to the South with the cotton gin. So you might say Eli Whitney does a great deal to help the South decide to fight the Civil War. And then, with interchangeable parts, which improves the factory system, he does a great deal to help the North win the Civil War. All Eli Whitney's fault. Everything in American history can be blamed on Eli Whitney. But slavery does become economically more important than they expected. Also, the state constitutions written during the Revolution in the North put slavery on the road to extinction there. Some immediately end slavery. Some do it gradually so that there will still be slavery in some northern states into the 1850s and 1860s. But ultimately, there is a sectional divide right there over slavery, as both sections are showing more tendencies toward democracy. Did you wish to add anything or correct anything? Um, no, see if there's anything more about women. Okay, more about women. What else do we see about women during the revolution? Yeah. They could divorce. More laws enabling women to do that, yeah. Okay, inheritance laws, Mitch. When the men were fighting, they had to assume more responsibility. They have my podcast that they'll be able to get some more on women. Too. Okay, the, and Deanna did a podcast on this, and there will be more on women in the revolution that you can download, listen to, comment on, work on, etc. Well, sometimes they took up arms too, right? Sometimes they take up arms. Who was the, do you talk about her, who was the? Um, Deborah Sampson. Deborah Sampson. Yes. Do you talk about her on there? No, Tell, I don't. You gotta talk a little about her here. I, I, this is take really awkward. Yes, take the thing. <laughs> I'll follow along. You know, okay. I'm used to following women and taking their instructions. Okay, so you'll be the camp follower? <laughs> yes. All right, that's cool. No, Deborah Sampson had actually dressed as a man so that she could fight in the revolution and there's been some psychological biographies of her as sort of why her motivation for doing that and 
<clears throat> she actually fought after many years afterwards to get a pension from for her service in the revolution and was actually able to do that which makes her pretty unusual kind of um, example that way right with women we've also got to consider and, and again this is on the the podcast that i did um their role in the colonial boycotts and those kind of things too so there's there's much more participation than there had been and um recognition, which is a, a, a great change, a great change. All right. A document you can get online very easily is Abigail Adams writing to John at the Continental Congress saying, remember the ladies. And John's response, which is kind of hard to figure out, because we know that he and Abigail just adored each other, not just as husband and wife, but intellectually. It was an intellectual partnership that you do not see with the other founding fathers and their wives. And John's response is something like, you expect with all of the changes going on here right now, we're going to give up our power over this? You, know, you, you, th you think you already aren't in control enough? And on the one hand, there are those who see it as mocking. On the other hand, it's also kind of aware of the role women are playing, especially Abigail Adams. Now, what else from the book struck you, bugged you? Okay, so Native Americans are considered a conquered nation. They can take the land. Were the British different? in their approach to Native Americans? They just exposed them to all kinds of diseases. Well, and they used them for their purposes. Yeah. But weren't they supposed to give them the land? If, if the British had held the land, the Natives would have had more land. That is what they were told. <laughs> Why do I have my doubts? Maybe because the people who were running the colonies had started out as Englishmen. <laughs> well, my faith isn't that great. But yeah, both sides. Which, if you think about it, is kind of a change from what's gone on, well, 20 years before with the French and Indian War, where both sides are working with Native Americans and the British stop colonial settlement in part to reward or keep an agreement with the Native Americans who helped them defeat France and France's Native allies. But now, only a few years go by, and well, let's, let's stick it to them. Doesn't matter which side we're on, we'll stick it to them. Anything else from this? You know, I... Oh, uh -oh. Go ahead. oh that was, we'll, we'll go one side. I, I actually found... Um, when uh, they were talking about Benedict Arnold, you know, you always hear just that one part that he's a traitor. I never realized that he had played such a big part in winning some of those battles. Mm -hmm. And then that it actually got me into going online, and then I read more about it, and he was actually court-martialed for using wagons for his private use, <laughs> government wagons. And I thought, well, that's okay. He, he could be in the, in the <laughs> military <laughs> now. I, <laughs> Or I mean, how many government CSM officials do the yeah. same thing? And yeah. I thought that was how ironic that, you know, even back then they were doing the same thing that 
Something's never changed. Yeah, no. it just keeps going. Oh. No, I mean, there's corruption there. I mean, George Washington, as much as we can admire George Washington, it's one of the great stories, when he agreed to be commander, and he wanted to be the commander of the Continental Army, he said, don't worry about my salary, pay my expenses. George Washington invented the three martini lunch. <laughs> I mean, this guy, he racked up the expenses. And when the time came for him to be president, he said, it's a new country, you don't have a lot of money, pay my expenses. And Congress said, no, <laughs> you will get a salary. And I think he got, well, he did get a salary. But, I mean, George would have racked up the numbers there. I mean, he, he and Benedict would have formed a good company, I think. That was over here, yeah. Why does it start then? Well, it's part of the, the whole republicanism theory because in order to be a good citizen, to be able to participate in government, you had to be educated. You had to be able to make choices to elect responsible people to government and so on and so on. See, this runs on a couple of tracks because one of the great contradictions of American history is that the Virginians, like Jefferson, feel that slavery gives them freedom. And, and there's a book on it, The Paradox of American History. How does slavery make you free? Because Jefferson is then free to sit there and think great thoughts. He isn't doing the labor. Okay. Well, at the same time, this kind of applies at the political level where their notion of democracy and our notion of democracy are incredibly different. But they believed in the idea of a republic of virtue. And one of the virtues was this. If you're Thomas Jefferson and you own a plantation or you're Benjamin Franklin and you own downtown Philadelphia or, or whatever it is you might have, you have the money and the time and the education to be the leader. And you have an obligation to serve. So the education track here runs in a couple of directions. By the way, I have to mention this about holding this. I'm being interviewed one day, and I've got a microphone on, and my stomach started gurgling. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the guy just rips his headphones off, and he says, wait a minute, we're hearing something weird. So if you end up listening to this downloaded, and all of a sudden you hear gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. So education, what else jumped out at you in this book? A lot of things jumped out at you. I know. I, this book wasn't hard to read. I liked this one. It wasn't like that Kooby Kooby book. But <laughs> um, I liked that the war isolated Britain and France, so we kind of slipped in and, and signed some treaties with France, so Britain had no choice but to then um, just follow our rules. I liked that there was some backdoor stuff going on. And then Benjamin Franklin was telling them that, hey, this is going on between We, well, we were, and then, to make it even shadier, part of the agreement was that we would not make peace without the French. And Franklin 
John Adams and John Jay have gone to negotiate the treaty to end the war and they're in Paris and they have their own intelligence network and they find out that the French are going in the back door too saying well we'll make a deal with you England on this and so the three of them finally go to England and say okay we don't need the French what do you want what's your deal and the French are a little bit upset but they get over it and frankly the three of them probably negotiated a better peace treaty without the French so not only are they learning how to maneuver but when they find the other guy maneuvering they're up to it that's another thing about this war that is important to bear in mind it was the US first string on the field it was not the British first string this is not the best generals the best political leaders not to mention Britain itself is having political turmoil one of, one of the best lines I ever heard about this I had a British history professor who came in to lecture on the revolution and he said all of you view this as your revolution this was our second civil war he said also you all think of yourselves as the colonies we had better ones well that's true the sugar colonies the West Indies etc they are more valuable colonies to the English losing the American colonies was not pleasant but the effort to keep them didn't rank as highly as keeping some of the others the reason that Franklin can negotiate with the French to get them into the war is the Battle of Saratoga well what happens at the Battle of Saratoga three British generals are supposed to meet and one of them decides to take off in the opposite direction trust me that's not your best general <laughs> poor Burgoyne is left sitting there naked that takes care of that and who who is the American who basically leads the Battle of Saratoga Benedict Arnold Horatio Gates gets the credit that's one of the things that upsets Arnold and the Continental Congress talks about replacing Washington with Gates because he won the Battle of Saratoga although Arnold won it our first string wasn't always that good either <laughs> is there anything that you thought was mi oh sorry go ahead Yeah, we're, we specialize in debt. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's the political argument to be made. You don't like the deficit? It was okay with Adams, Franklin, Jefferson, and Washington. But, and Hamilton, who gave us the national debt when he was Treasury Secretary. One of the ways they financed the war was lotteries. We out here should feel a little proprietary about the revolution. You know? There are lotteries going on. Wow, they're gambling. What's missing? What's not in the book that you want to know more about? I mean, you look more into Benedict Arnold. Whether it's stuff you heard that you thought would be there and wasn't, or stuff you'd like to know more about. What do you want to know more about? We promise not to tell you. Go ahead. Get any better according 
Butte. He's a new king. He's a young king. He's 22 when he becomes king. I hope you all at the age of 22 did not feel ready to be king. Although, frankly, kings don't do anything now. But back then, they, they did more. And there is a continuing fight in England over who runs the government, how much of a role does the king play, how much of a role does parliament play, how important is the empire. During the revolution, the main British leader is Lord North, who keeps getting knocked out of office and brought back in, and has all kinds of problems of his own. And by the time the revolution's over, George III, it's felt, has blown it with the colonies. Now, it's during the late 1780s that George III begins having mental problems. And there, there is a name for it. I don't remember what the condition was. But he basically hallucinated. Preferred, I think, yeah. Uh, but there, there was the time he was riding his carriage through London, stopped it, got out, and went over and started talking to a tree. And when they asked the king what he was doing, he said he was talking with the king of Prussia, who interestingly looked a bit like a tree. I hadn't really thought this until I saw a portrait of him, and it was kind of appropriate. But he is eventually just king in name only, as little as we think of a king doing. I think it's around 1811, his son is appointed to a position, it's kind of like, I think they call it regent, where he does the ceremony as the ceremonial duties as king because George III can't do them. And he dies about 10 years later. So he is never that popular in Great Britain and he has his own set of problems. It's more than you wanted to know. Now you'll be afraid to bring up anything else. Is there anything else in the book that you thought was strange, or you were surprised it was there, you wish more had been there? They spent a lot, you know, they a little bit, bit about the women, but like Betsy Ross and Abigail Adams, they really didn't talk about those women and how important they were. And in teaching, especially like in fifth grade, the girls really kind of feel left out sometimes because it's all about the men. You know, so it would have been nice to have Did you all find things that when you were doing the foldables, you tried to bring in women more? What, what did you do with yours? chime in here? You can take the whole thing. It's okay. No, okay. You can take her for women's history. Um, would you like to move off into the document here? Or? It's probably about time to switch. Okay. Focus a bit. Do you want me to keep following? No, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> 
I'll, I'll take the sweater off for the next round. Yeah. And of course, I don't have any pockets. Well, the, the one thing that I usually find whenever we talk about the American Revolution is that the emphasis is always on the key people, right? It's like, it's Ben Franklin, it's Sam Adams, you know, he's not just named for beer, Paul Revere, you know, all of the, the big names, and even the women, it's the big name women. You hear about Betsy Ross, you hear about Abigail Adams, but you don't hear about average kind of people. And one of the latest trends in, in scholarship with the American Revolution is to focus on the role of average people in the revolution and how they were responsible for leading a lot of the mob kind of action. And their desire was really that it's not just a fight against the crown that they were hoping to change, but to fundamentally alter how society dealt with class issues. That that's one of the things that they hoped that they could move le away from a class-based society. Obviously, we did a really fabulous job with that. But um, it's nonetheless an idea and an attitude that prevailed a lot uh, for a lot of average kind of people was that the war should mean something for them, that their status is going to be based on their accomplishments, achievements, rather than what family they were born into and how much wealth that they had. That, um, that shows up in battlefield appointments and um, things like that where people actually did get um, changes in rank because of their abilities and things. So that's a general kind of trend, but more specifically than that, a lot of the, pe the average people were really pushing the envelope and really hoping that laws would reflect very clearly those changes in democratic values, or what they were calling democratic values then. And it's interesting that by the time we get to the constitutional period, the constitutional era, is that the elites, who were largely the ones who were at the Constitutional Convention, were saying that one of the problems of the American Revolution was an excess of democracy, that it was a mobocracy, that the average people had too much power and too much sway, and they were trying to move things back. So replacing elite British officials with elite American officials <laughs> and setting things up so that you had to own land in order to vote in state elections and a lot of things like that, which leads then to a, another generation sort of fighting for those kinds of changes to happen. But that's, it's an interesting kind of thing, and there are a number of books that focus on the role of average people which provides us with perhaps an interesting segue into um, a couple of the documents that are in the packet that we, you got last time. I had hoped that there was a different packet that we'd have for today, but um, we had some miscommunication. Um, one of the interesting things is to look at particularly the thing on the Boston Massacre. And there's, it's the points of view 
of the Boston Massacre, that within that you have a British officer's description of the Boston Massacre, and then colonists take on that, including George Robert Twelve Hughes, who was a shoemaker in Boston and was actually there in the crowd whenever the massacre occurred, and gives a very different kind of view of things. And then later in the packet, I think, or part of the second packet, no, actually, it's the, towards the end of that, you have Paul Revere's rather famous image of the Boston Massacre. And it's really interesting that Paul Revere made this lovely engraving when he wasn't actually there. <laughs> so it's, it's not an accurate kind of portrayal of what actually happened at the Boston Massacre. So these are sort of interesting kind of things that when you're looking for primary source documents, it's often very helpful for students to see different points of view. And we always try when we put document sets together to make sure that different point of views are covered, to make sure that there's things about women, things about African Americans, things about Native Americans, and, and things like that so that we can get those different kinds of points of view there. But it's often also fun to just do an event like the Boston Massacre and see what different people were saying about that, right? So why don't we spend a few minutes and we'll ask the third grade teachers to look at the Boston officer's description, the fourth grade teachers to look at George Robert Twelve Hughes' sort of take on that, and then the fifth grade teachers to look at the account in the Boston Gazette and Country Journal, okay? So we'll spend a, a few minutes with these documents and then we'll see what these different points of view are reflecting in those particular documents. <laughs> 